It's clear there's parts of the economy that are in recession. The bright spot is the hiring, the, the jobs market. If for some reason the jobs market completely slows down and in fact goes in the exact opposite, you start to see the unemployment rate drift up above 4%, 5%. That could worry the committee, the, the Federal Reserve Committee. And if that happens, they may be vested in cutting interest rates. And given their propensity to take the overnight rate to zero several years ago, that would be a big concern. I think it would be a big mistake for them to do that, but it is on my mind. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today I'm joined by Mike Kastner, who is a co-founder and principal at Halyard Asset Management, which is a firm specializing in cash management for the CTA or managed futures industry. And the background to our conversation is that recently one of our listeners wrote in with a question about cash management after he had heard the first few episodes in our special CTA mini-series that Alan and I are doing at the moment. And since the company I work for has a link to a great firm in this industry, I wanted to see if we can help shed some light on this part of our industry. With that said, Mike, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have really been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're doing well. Yes, Niels, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into the different topics, uh, Mike, that we're going to be discussing, I thought we should set the stage for our conversation a little bit so that the audience knows a little bit about Halyard's background, um, but perhaps also the backstory to what led you set up the company in the first place. Can you share a little bit of light on your history? Sure. We started Halyard in 2010, Steve Boyd and Adam Cohn and I. We came out of a fund of funds and... Basically, for the past 23 years, we've managed money for Dunn Capital Management. We've managed their collateral. After the 2008 crisis, we found that our services were no longer required at the fund of funds. So we launched the Halyard Fixed Income Group. And since then, we've grown to $1.9 billion, and we have about 23 accounts. Ten of them are CTAs. Okay. That's great. And in terms of, um, you know, cash management services that you uh, that you offer, are uh, all of these sort of within one type of mandate or, or how cost, how customized uh, is the, the services you offer today? Mike? The service is fully customizable. We find our clients have different level, levels of comfort in their asset classes. So we run everything from a 100% treasury portfolio 
to 100% um, investment grade corporate bond portfolios. Okay. Now, in, in, in order to give a little bit of a, a you know, sort of different aspects of the cash management industry, what I wanted to ask you to begin with would be to maybe if you could share a, a kind of a history of how cash management has fitted into our industry. Because uh, as far as I recall, at least, there's been kind of different ways that we on the manager side have been dealing with cash management. I mean, we've already, we've always had the cash, so to speak, because we, as futures managers, we only manage or we only need about, you know, 20, 30% of the cash to uh, to have our positions on. Um, but there's certainly been different ways people have been going about this. So can you take us back as far as possible in terms of what, you, what you've seen uh, managers do initially and maybe how they've evolved in terms of how they manage their cash? Well, what I'll do is I'll go back to how we actually constructed what we call the reserve cash management. It's a strategy that has a maximum maturity for floating rate notes of three years and for fixed rate, for fixed notes of two years. And we started back when Steve and I were at Deutsche Bank and we had a very active vein of business in Silicon Valley. And what we would do is the newly minted millionaires and billionaires would would come to Deutsche Bank and we would manage their cash before they look to secondary investments. So from that, we developed what I said, the reserve cash management, and it became a natural extension into the CTAs because CTAs want to enhance the cash that they have on hand and at the same time keep it safe. Yeah, no, absolutely. But the way I think about it, and, and maybe you can comment on that a little bit, Mike, you know, I remember at least that when managers were managing cash and including the firms I've worked for back in the day, we wouldn't even use a cash manager. We would just keep it in treasuries ourselves or we would actually have it in the bank to a large extent before we all realized in 2007 and eight that banks are maybe not as safe as, as they uh, used to be. So do you have any reference point in terms of how CTAs were doing it kind of back in the 90s or early 2000s, for example, how they were doing it? Well, part of the answer is what you just said. Some of them would do it on their own in the treasury bill market. Others would leave it in banks and others would leave it in the brokers. Since 2008 and the the blow up of the prime fund, the CTAs have been more conscientious about making sure their cash was safe. So the RCM strategy when you compare it to a 2A7 money market fund or do it yourself, we're typically going to be able to outperform those strategies by between 50 and 100 basis points. Um, certainly, we haven't been able to do that the last several years when we've been in the, in the zero interest rate environment. But I think that'll be a good target going forward. Yeah, you mentioned a fund blowing up. That's also something that I certainly remember because uh, there, there was a lot of talk about that. And I think at the time, certainly I also recall that we were being pitched a lot at the time by these money market funds. Can you can you take us back to to that time and explain a little bit about what what actually you know went on? I'm not sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with that money market fund and, and what actually happened. And and also, I'd love to know what, what you learned from that and took with you in your own journey. Well, first off, the way money market funds are run today is not too dissimilar to the way that they were run back in 2008. And what the money fund 
portfolio managers seek to do is maximize their return on portfolio. And that might seem like uh, uh, the standard for anybody, but at Halyard, we want to maximize return, but at the same time, maintain liquidity and safety so that when we go into times of panic, we're actually able to buy beaten down securities with money that we have on the sidelines and at the same time, not be forced to sell into a panic. And and can you explain a little bit, uh, Mike, about what actually went wrong with this uh, money market fund back then? Well, this money market fund, the, the prime fund had a large position in Lehman Brothers. And when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, they had to they had to mark their portfolio down. And when they did that, all of the investors in the portfolio, keep in mind the money market fund is a co-mingled vehicle, they demanded their money back. And as a result, the prime fund had to put up their, put up what that's called the gate. They, they suspended redemptions. So CTAs that were in there weren't able to get their money to meet margin calls. At Halyard, we, we don't do that. We keep a buffer of treasury bills as well as our investment grade paper. And as, as I said before, during times of panic, we'd rather step in and buy the paper rather than have to be forced liquidation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd love to talk much more in depth maybe about uh, how you guys do that today. But before we get to that, again, more of a general comment and an observation from your side. Now, in the last 10, 15 years leading into 2022, almost, you know, there weren't much interest to be picked up from from anything. Uh, in fact, if you were European, it was about trying to avoid negative interest rates. So I imagine that it would have been pretty hard to be, you know, a cash manager and, and make much of a difference, really. Um, but again, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But I'm really curious to know how you think the whole cash management space has changed in the last 12, 15 months now that interest rates are not zero anymore? Well, certainly it's gotten a whole lot better. We're seeing very attractive very attractive opportunities to invest in short maturity fixed income. I'd go so far as to say it's the best investing environment in the last 15 years. Um, for the past several years, it's been a challenge. We would have to find out, find securities that were trading cheap for, for one reason or another and in the zero interest rate environment, we were generating uh, high high double digits. Uh, call it call it twenty five to fifty basis points by by diversifying in in investment grade and uh, municipal securities. Okay, and you know, just talking about sort of your approach to this, is there? I mean, we we often get asked as a manager to talk about our investment philosophy, so to speak. So I wonder if there's a philosophy to cash management uh, as well, and 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 how you uh, how you think about that uh, in 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 your world. Yeah, there absolutely is a philosophy. We think about it in many ways, like an equity manager would. We start with the universe of corporations that we like. And then what we do is we buy the, the cheapest corporations and then we sell the richer ones as they cycle through the market. And actually, we found find quite a bit of opportunity in both the corporate market as well as in the treasury bill market. The um, With the Fed raising interest rates, the, uh, the treasury bill market has gotten a little bit kinked. So we're, we're actually able to find opportunities where we can 
sell treasury bills at ridiculously overpriced levels and then buy them at cheaper levels, depending upon what the market thinks the Fed's going to do at the next committee meeting. Yeah, which is an interesting discussion on this day uh, where we are recording, uh, as we've just seen that some U.S. jobless uh, or payrolls come out. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, but in this kind of construction of your portfolio and the way you try and, you know, combine various securities to, as you say, adhere to keeping money safe, but also having maybe a little bit of an advantage in terms of the interest you get and also keeping it liquid. Let's start with liquidity, for example. What what are the considerations you have and 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 how from a liquidity point of view and and again in the context of a CTA where you know what what you know how the the needs of a CTA typically are, um how would you how would you go about thinking about and constructing the portfolio from a liquidity point of view? Well, there's Three perspectives with regard to liquidity. First off, we like to maintain a uh, a position in treasury bills, and the treasury bills could be settled on the same day. So, if a CTA manager needs a large wire to meet a collateral need, we can liquidate that the same morning and then send it out by the by the middle of the day. Secondly, we look to um, to big, deep, liquid corporate bonds that will trade close to what treasury bills like. There'll be a little bit of a bid-ass spread, but not too much. And then lastly, what we do for the portfolios is we'll seek yield-enhanced opportunities in the taxable muni market when we when we see them. They're less liquid, but they're, they're, they also offer more of a yield over an investment-grade corporate or a treasury bill. And just staying with liquidity, uh, Mike, because I seem to remember that during COVID, uh, March 2020, even the U.S. Treasury market became, quote-unquote, somewhat uh, illiquid. So I'm wondering, can you talk to me about how you think the whole, you know, liquidity, uh, um, I wouldn't call it space, it's not what I mean, but how is liquidity in general, how has that changed in the last few years and because also when I look at it from a European perspective, for example, where interest rates have been negative, essentially, if I look at some of the bond markets, I mean, I actually started out in the bond market myself. Um, and, and my understanding is that today, in many countries, there's not much of a bond market because there really wasn't any people wanting to to participate much in, in the negative yield uh, environment. And therefore, uh, we've lost a lot of of participants, uh, certainly the ones who were offering or, or providing the liquidity. So, so, and you can break it down. I mean, I'd love to hear more details about how you see liquidity in treasuries, in corporates, in municipals. Yeah, as much detail you can provide would be great. Sure. And March 2020 is um, an ideal opportunity to kind of focus on that liquidity. At that time, one of the big um, money center banks had a run on their short maturity fixed income portfolio. So they had to liquidate an enormous amount of paper. Um, I'm happy to say that we were actually a buyer during that period. We, we, we scooped up some really attractive deals during that March. In terms of liquidity, the Fed, the Fed provided liquidity back in March 2020. The, the market couldn't absorb it all, and it was really in disarray. And as a result, we saw – we saw some corporate bonds trading in the, the high single 
digit percentage rates. And as I said, we, we liquidated some of our treasuries and bought that paper. It was good quality paper. It was just a, a, a completely illiquid market. Now, your point is right. The, the dealers are, are, are better sellers of corporate bonds than they are of buyers. They don't want to provide that liquidity. So what the Fed has done to address that is they're discouraging money market funds from offering prime money market funds anymore. And what I mean by prime money market funds is they're, they're funds that do what we do in the RCM strategy, that, and that's invest in corporate bonds or bonds that are not U.S. treasuries. So as a result, the money market fund has become overwhelmingly U.S. treasury dominated. It's about 80, 85% of the money market space is now positioned with U.S. treasuries in it. And in terms of corporate and municipal uh, bonds, uh, how, how has liquidity generally evolved in the last few years in, in, in that area, would you say? Well, truth be told, you will see illiquidity in the corporate market from time to time. When there's any kind of panic, whether it's in the equity market or in the uh, currency market, the dealers like to step away. They don't want to put up their risk capital to take people out of positions and As I said before, what we do is we seek to hold a treasury buffer so that when we see these opportunities, we're able to go in there and actually be providers of liquidity as opposed to trying to liquidate our holdings into a panicky market. And in terms of other factors that I'm curious about um, when you construct these portfolios, we've kind of touched upon it a little bit indirectly, but what about credit rating? What Where do you draw the line in terms of what is safe and what is not safe? And I imagine as well that there are probably some uh, restrictions in terms of what managers are willing to accept in terms of the percentage holdings of different categories of of fixed income instruments. How 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 do you construct that to to meet your uh, your mandates, so to speak, your all all of your mandates? Well, for the for the RCM strategy as it stands, we have a minimum investment credit rating of A for the overall portfolio. We will invest in triple B paper, but when we're investing in triple Bs, we want to see a company that's actually improving their financials and is at risk of being upgraded. With that said, we don't invest in all investment-grade paper. Uh, U.S. banks, we do like. Canadian banks have an unusual provision where they can be bailed in and What I mean by that is if for some reason or another the company was was to become at risk, the fixed income paper could be converted into equities. So we do not buy any Canadian banks. And for European banks and Japanese banks, we don't think they're while their, while their credit rating is investment grade, we don't like the credit quality and the riskiness that they hold in their portfolios. So we avoid them as well. Now, uh, another thing that has come um, on the uh, radar of uh, most investors in the last few years is is ESG, and uh, I imagine that there's also some, con- you know, um, considerations. Of course, maybe depending manager by manager, I don't know. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about uh, what you see uh, managers do in terms of? of approaching ESG through the cash management that you do? Yes. Uh, we we are ESG compliant 
in most of our portfolios. And the good news is, is most of the big corporations in the United States have moved in the direction of being ESG compliant. So while at one point it was a very narrow universe and made it difficult to achieve diversification, it's gotten much more broad now. So, so the vast majority of our portfolio of, true, of approved corporations are ESG approved. Okay. And and of course, me not being an expert in, in your uh, field, um, are there any other considerations that you need to to take into account uh, when you construct a portfolio for a, a client like a CTA? Is there anything else you, you put into yeah, the Yeah, well, equation? you hit the nail on the head with liquidity. We've talked about it on several dis different equations. And, and basically, when we buy a security, if it's going to be a, a material holding in the portfolio, We want to have a good idea that it's going to be it's going to be liquid. And our target for the for the RCM strategy is to be able to fully liquidate the portfolio in three days. Although in most cases that can usually be done in a day. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Now another thing from a practical point of view, I guess certainly that's something that uh, that uh, that we deal with on our side is of course, and and I'm sure many CTAs do is that there are different currency uh, classes in 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 a fund and so people will some people will invest in in euros or swiss francs or pounds or whatever it might be um so so that's obviously another angle on on all of this so how do you deal with with the fact that the, there could be many different currencies in a fund that you are asked to manage the well, cash for well we do manage two uh usage funds out of uh, dublin ireland And they're they're both ESG compliant, and they also require us to do um, foreign exchange hedging for them. And our approach to foreign exchange hedging is to avoid period ends. So month end, quarter end, year end are the the times when corporations will come in and hedge out their 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 P and L. So you can never really be sure which way the market's going to go. But during those period ends, there's a good chance that The, there could be market dislocation. So what we found the sweet spot for hedging is to do our hedging on a one-month basis and do it to the middle of the month to avoid those kind of busy times of hedging. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I seem to remember uh, having something similar uh, many years ago when I was more involved in these things. Okay, so one thing that um, that we talk a lot about on the manager side is all is this thing about you know uh, number of markets. Now I know it doesn't fully apply to what you do, but it does to some extent because it has something to do with um, you know maximum risk in in any one single uh, instrument uh, or et cetera, et cetera. So how do you decide in terms of how many? instruments and quote-unquote positions that you in, want to have or need to have in, in your portfolio in order to, you know, balance uh, most appropriately um, the, the mandates that you have? Well, our comfort is rated about two, two and a half percent per position. So our portfolios will have anything anywhere between 50 to 60 different line items, if you will. And again, The diversification is is imperative because even with the with the best financial analyst, you could miss something and see a little bit of uh, credit widening if a uh, a corporation misses when they're when they release their quarterly financials. 
Yeah, no, true. Which actually also turns um, on to my next uh, question, and that's kind of more the area of risk management. Now, again, this is another topic that that we talk a lot about on the podcast when it comes to managers. But but what about in the cash management world? What 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 are the what are the risk management kind of metrics you use, um, if I can call it that? And and maybe you can explain. And I know some of it is maybe a little bit taken from earlier points we've talked about today. But but overall, if you should frame your your approach to risk management, how how would you frame well, that, Mike? Well, what I'll say is we don't do it the way the CTAs would do it. We're not looking at value at risk. <laughs> um, the way we view risk management is in construction of the RCM strategy. We've been doing it for 25 years and we've been through a number of financial panics. So for us, the the, the stresses is really liquidity, diversification, security selection, and the ability to move in and out of markets when needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do you see, I'm just curious, I mean, obviously you work with a number of different CTAs. Um, do you see there's a big difference in what they want from you or are we all more or less the same when it comes to our cash management I nowadays? Think I, every one of our clients is different. They have different mandates. They have different risk tolerances. We have one CTA that only wants to use treasury bills. So basically we build out a, tre- a portfolio of treasury bills holding between 10 and 15 of them. And interestingly enough, we do see opportunities to trade around those treasury bill positions to actually add value over and above what would be earned by just buying and holding the treasury bills to maturity. Okay. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to my next question, and that is how should managers, and of course, therefore, their underlying clients, um, think about kind of the expected returns uh, in in cash management? And, and maybe even I would go... And, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts more broadly as well. Uh, but if I was going to throw in kind of this active versus passive type investment uh, approach, obviously you're active, um, but a lot of people would be pretty passive in this in this area of, of finance. So how do you see that whole kind of uh, those forces? And, and then, as I said, how you would think about kind of expected benefits or returns uh, in one versus well, the other? For our strategy, we've been able to outperform money markets since we've since we've implemented it. And when you think about the CTAs and the hedge funds in general, they have a philosophy of they eat what they kill. And by leaving their cash passively managed, they're leaving opportunity on the table. So if we can earn between 50, 75, 100 basis points over the, the the treasury bill market, that's real money. And that's real money that they're leaving on the table unnecessarily. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, it kind of ties in a little bit with one other thing, which again has been a big point of discussion in our industry. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of pressure on this and it's the fees. I can imagine that your industry would have also uh, met some of that as interest rates kind of sat around the zero level. Um, so so maybe you can go back a little bit, a couple of decades perhaps, and just ex- tell us a little bit about the evolution of fees in your industry and where they kind of are today. Don't have to disclose any specific fees, but where they are generally and and how you see that evolve going forward? That that would be really yeah. Interesting. Well, the fees have certainly compressed along with all investment management. Um, 
compensation. Um, but I think it's a mistake to look at the fee only. Right now, if you go out, you can take a look at some very large money market funds, and they're charging 35 basis points, which is which is and was quite large given the environment we were just in. There's others that are very low fees, some of the 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 the, the ETFs, but in looking at the fees, the, the you should follow up by looking at the performance of the portfolio. And not just the overall performance, but the por- portfolio performance during times of stress. And that really will tell the tale about what, whether you're getting what you need for the, for the fee that you're paying or if you're actually getting less than you should because you're, you're paying a cheap fee. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's, that sounds very similar to uh, to our side of the business where we also think people should look at the the net return when they look at the uh, the cheap cheapest options for sure. Now, okay, I think that's a pretty good overview. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about specifically in terms of that's important for, for, for the audience to know about cash management um, as, as we, uh, where we are today before we shift to uh, another uh, set of uh, topics that I'd love to hear your thoughts about. Is there anything that I missed uh, asking you, I don't you, think Mike? so. It's a fairly straightforward business, but it's important to view the overall business in terms of the the diversification and liquidity because our our CTAs need their money when they need the money. So we have to be adept at being able to liquidate portfolio and wire money when they need it. Yeah, actually, that's one good point that you just mentioned there. I mean, I would imagine that this is something that people may not realize, but I mean, technology plays a role because you're dealing with things where sometimes money needs to be at a different you know, in a different part of the world, more or less on the same day. So having that overview, uh, I imagine, and, and and the ability to to manage all of this, I would have thought is is quite important. And the other thing that I wanted to maybe ask you to comment on, because I think it's important on our side of the table, even though we are quantif- uh, quantitative strategies, but I would imagine that maybe on your side, it's even more important or e- equally important and that's just experience. You mentioned earlier you'd seen a few things in in your career. Um, so, I mean, is there anything you could share in terms of uh, things that that where you where you kind of um, was surprised of? Wow, could that really happen in this liquid market? And where you learned some lessons, maybe good, maybe bad. Well, as I said before, I think the the lesson learned was really building out a solid portfolio where there's not going to be any surprises. And what we do is on an ongoing basis, we're looking at the companies we invest in. So on a, on, on a daily basis, we'll look into their balance sheets, we'll look at their, their monthly performance, and we'll try to evaluate what we should anticipate when they re- release their quarterly results. We don't like surprises. We like to, to be plugged into the, to the company. So in that sense, we operate more of like an equity manager than a fixed income manager. All right, well, let's shift gear, Mike, because I wanted to also spend a few minutes on kind of how you see the world. Obviously, you're a you know fixed income specialist with decades of experience. And, um, you know, this uh, space continues to 
surprise. And of course, it's a lot in focus at the moment because it seems like the whole world uh, is just watching uh, what the Fed is saying. I'm not necessarily saying they're listening to what the Fed is saying, but they're watching. And uh, and so talk a little bit about how you see the world uh, right now and, and we'll just walk through kind of your outlook and and expectations maybe as much as we can? Sure. Um, I would say prior to this morning's employment report, I think the vast majority of investors assumed that the U.S. was in recession. And the reason I say that is because of this, the deeply inverted yield curve. And what that means is the long bonds are are, are much more expensive than short maturity fixed income, about a 75 basis point inversion between overnight paper and the 30 year. Um, I don't think we're going to slip into a recession. And the reason being is because we have such a strong employment backdrop. We have basically a shortage of workers in the U.S. And as a result, there's going to be continued to have um, an expansion of the workforce. And that means more money being earned. With that said, certainly housing, manufacturing, and autos to a lesser extent are, I would argue, in recession right now. Services are hanging in there and seem to be the, the counter counterweight to those industries. But the long end just doesn't make it any sense at the current yield levels. I mean, you mentioned the um, the unemployment numbers that just came out. Uh, you and I are recording on Friday, February third, and uh, of course, they were somewhat surprising. Through your your updates, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you talk a lot about, um, you know, and I've seen other people talk about this fact that, you know, yeah, maybe the the markets are listening to the Fed, but they're not really hearing what they they're saying. What do you think the Fed really is saying at this time? Because also, I think part of the optimism that came into the early part of 2023 was this sense that maybe target rate will won't be uh, you know or the the the, the peak of, of rates won't be five and a half percent it'll be closer to five and so there has been signs of maybe not as hawkish uh, as as we kind of thought three months ago w- w- where do you think we were heading and uh, and and then once we get there what do you think is going to happen well you're right uh, just Three months ago, the the target from the Federal Reserve at the overnight rate seemed to be five and a quarter to five and a half percent. And that at his press conference on Wednesday, Chairman Powell sounded a lot less hawkish than he did at the end of last year. So at the conclusion of that meeting, I I anticipated they had maybe another 25 or two 25 basis point moves and that they would stop it at five percent. And with that said, the long end is so overvalued relative to where inflation is running, I think that we would actually see the curve re-steepen as the Fed uh, paused their, their rate hikes. And and where do you think, given the number we've just had today, I know it's uh, maybe a, a cheeky question to ask you with so short notice, um, do you think it's still 5%? I mean, after we see what we've seen this morning and... And also, you talk about that overvaluation of of thirty year bonds. I mean, can you explain that to what you mean by that, and and how much of an overvaluation uh, that 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 equates to? Sure. Uh, to address the first question, um, I I was shocked, and I think everyone else was shocked because since the end of last year, there's been a uh, 
a lot of announcements of layoffs from big corporations. So we expected to start to see that uh, first in the, the unemployment insurance and then secondly in the, the monthly payroll report. And as a result, I this the, this morning's number came right out of left field. It, it just didn't really, it didn't make any sense. With regard to valuation, um, the bond market t- typically values a uh, the inflation premium as being inflation plus one and a quarter percent. Our anticipation is that the Fed will be successful in getting inflation down, but we don't think they're going to get it back down to the two percent. Level, we think it's more likely down to a three and a half percent. So, if you add the 125 basis point premium on that, the fair value of the long bond is 475. And if you put those numbers into a bond calculator, that shows that the 30 year bond is overvalued by 15 percent right now. So, as a result, we think that there's a um, a pretty good chance of a significant downtick in the long bond price. Yeah, no, I mean, that uh, wouldn't surprise me uh, either, of course. And uh, in terms of the wider economy, before we kind of uh, uh, wind our conversations down, um, in in terms of the wider uh, economy, U.S. economy, clearly that's something you follow very closely, much, much closer than I uh, do um, what else should investors? Uh, because I think to some extent we're all affected about uh, by what happens to interest rates and and both short term and, and and long term and and what happens in the U.S. to a large extent, of course, spills over to to other parts of Europe. And and I would love if you think that there is. I mean, I'd love if you have a view on what's going on in in Europe. I would love to hear if you have a view on what the Japanese have been going, you know, have going on uh, in in their yield curve uh, control. Just just to get your thoughts on on these things. Well, we take a very negative impression of yield tr- yield curve control. We think that the Fed uh, they controlled our yield yield curve for years, and that created the distortion, and I would argue, quite frankly, that also caused the inflation problem that we're going through now. So I don't I don't like yield curve control. With that said, I think that the U.S. market is going to go through a slow period until we get reacclimated to the current level of interest rates. So for, for instance, right now, the housing market is basically completely dried up because no one's going to refinance their mortgage at a 6% when it was just 2.5% 18 months ago. It doesn't make economic sense. But ultimately, people will have to buy houses, buy and sell houses, and they're going to have to come to terms with mortgage rates that are between 5 and 6%. But until they're able to come to terms with that level, we expect that the housing market's going to be on hold. We expect it's going to be difficult for the automobile market and difficult for corporations in general to refinance their their corporate paper. Okay. Just one final question on that before I have just a, a couple of final questions. My, I heard um, maybe about a year ago, um, some people say that, well, if interest rates go back to the levels they were in 2007, corporate America would be spending half of their profits just servicing debt because of the huge corporate debt and once they had to go out and refinance at much higher rates, of course. What's the, I mean, that may be true, but but I'd love to hear what you think about that 
And actually, another thing, once we were talking about servicing debt, I mean, what about central banks? I mean, how how high can rates go and maintain before they find it difficult to service their debt, in your opinion? Well, to answer the second question first, um, the central banks have been very clever in in their activities in terms of debt management. So they would find a way to, to, to manage that debt. I mean, we've basically watched the central banks uh, print money and spend it. So um, I'm not worried about them. To answer the first question, corporate America was rewarded for issuing debt and buying back their own stock. Um, it created an upward trajectory to their profits and their CEOs were compensated for doing so. But as a result, the the balance sheet of many corporations has deteriorated. And your point is, yes, as they have to refund this debt, it's going to become more of a drag on their, on their P&L. And the CEOs, quite frankly, will be criticized for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, and and I think this the the and this is something I'm learning as my my daughter is uh, starting university, and uh, and that is this thing about the the rule. I forget the number, but it's a specific rule that from 1993 onwards in the U.S. meant that that compensation of these top CEOs had to be linked to the profitability or whatever it was the value the value creation of of the companies and therefore essentially the share price um and maybe that's not a great way of uh, giving the proper incentives um but um anyways don't know if you have a view on that or not doesn't matter but i will want to ask you just something we ask trend followers in in our series on the cta industry is you know, what's the one thing you've heard about trend following that you disagree with the most? And I wanted to kind of, again, maybe a little bit cheeky, ask you the same. If there's something you hear about cash management that you really disagree with, um, is there anything that springs to mind? That I disagree with? Um, I, I, I can't really identify anything that I would disagree with in cash management. I, I think that, um, as I said several times, I think it's important to position high quality corporations in the portfolio and avoid those that are somewhat questionable. Yeah, no, I just want to make sure you heard my question. I know we have a little bit of an audio issue, at least on my side, but my question was not whether you disagree with cash management, is whether you disagree, if there's something you hear people say about cash management that you disagree with. Oh, yeah. I think w- I, what I disagree with is the the idea that it's easy and you can do it yourself. And, and in my experience, I've been doing this for 35 years now. When someone that's inexperienced in the market says that it's easy and they can do it themselves, they're going to have trouble at some point down the line. Yeah, and no, I think that makes sense. That's actually also some of the things that we kind of hear uh, from time to time. Uh, that trend following is so easy that everyone can do it, but I certainly disagree with that. Final question, Mike, before we round up our conversation, and that's just kind of, um, you know, summarizing what we talked about maybe into a question. When you look into 2023, what are you most excited about and and what gives you cause for concern when you look uh, into the uh, the coming year? Well, what I'm most excited about, and I said at the beginning, this is the best time for for my market in the last 15 years. And I think listening to the Federal Reserve, it's going to stay that way for all of 2023. What concerns me most about this this year is that 
the possibility that the Fed panics, that the economy does tick down, that the stock market isn't as buoyant as it's been, and the Fed panics and cuts interest rates and does so in a uh, significant fashion. That's that's a worry that I have. And what do you think might actually happen if they do so, if I can just follow up on that? Well, as I said, it's clear there's parts of the economy that are in recession. The bright spot is the hiring, the, the jobs market. If for some reason the jobs market completely slows down and in fact goes in the exact opposite, you start to see the unemployment rate drift up above 4%, 5%, 5.5%. That could worry the uh, the committee, the, the Federal Reserve Committee. And if that happens, they may be vested in cutting interest rates. And given their propensity to take the overnight rate to zero several years ago, that would be a big concern. I think it would be a big mistake for them to do that, but it is on my mind. Okay, yeah, but just again for me to understand, Mike, I understand that you're afraid of that, but what are you afraid will happen if they do it? That's what I'm trying to find out in terms of, I mean, is it just that inflation comes back or is there something else you you find? Or is it, could it be that your concern is that markets will lose confidence in what they're doing in the first place, which, you know, if they don't have confidence, that can, you know, lead to big bigger problems I, I guess yeah and I, I think that is that that's the concern that they they lose confidence they they lost a lot of confidence when they were identifying the inflation rate as being transitory they got their confidence back by being so aggressive in 2022 so much so that the stock market's off to a uh, to a decent year this year and and feels like that will continue. But should their, their confidence be lost again, you could see stock prices take a significant hit. And after the, the dip they experienced last year, that could be very problematic for the economy as a whole. Mike, this is a, a good place to uh, to end our conversation uh, for now, at least. Thank you very much for, for your time and your insights and your thoughts about this. This is a, an area which, of course, is very closely linked linked to what we do in our in our industry. But it was the first time we've had a chance to really dig into uh, this area. So I really appreciate that. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Mike and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the many facets of the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode, as well as all the other resources you can find on our website. And as usual, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.